Welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Hello, nice to be with you again. Yeah. So this week we're covering more of the uh, minor prophets. Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Three yeah. fabulous prophets and... They come at a really nice chronological time, but do you want to talk about our emphasis first? Yeah. So how does this bring me closer to Christ? How mm. does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? And all three of these prophets have testimonies of the coming Messiah. And all of these three of these prophets are consistent with the time period that Lehi was preaching in Jerusalem. Mm. You know, it's interesting, as the minor prophets were organized in the Hebrew Bible, it was all one book. They called it the Twelve, for the Twelve Minor Prophets, just because they're shorter in length. And we have this beautiful um, chronological grouping. So these three are about the same time period, starting with about, you know, 650 B.C., and falling down to the time of the Babylonians coming in. Mm. But Nineveh, I mean, Nahum is preaching about the destruction of Nineveh. And I get those names in my mind together because I try to remember which of the prophets, of the minor prophets, did which things. And Nahum starts with an N and Nineveh starts with an N. So that's how I'm remembering that one. The word Nahum, comfort or consolation, is sometimes used in the same roots as mourning. A place of mourning. And it's interesting, if you take out the vowels, it's consistent with the same word in the Book of Mormon, that land where they buried Ishmael. Okay. The land was named Nahum, and it was not a land that they named, like the waters of Laman and the Valley of Lemuel or vice versa. Uh, This one was actually a, a place where a burial ground was. It's, in fact, the largest burial ground in all of the Sinai Peninsula. And it has this root of the same here is our prophet Nahum, who is uh, one who gives comfort as well. We don't know much about the man himself. He's a poet. Um, His whole book is one long, beautiful poem. And it describes Nahum's vision of the destruction of Assyria. And we know that Assyria falls in 612 to Babylon. So that's the end date and we go back as early as, you know, 663. As we look at the text, you can sort of tell what things are happening. Um, but Assyria sort of had a victorious hold on a, a large portion of Mesopotamia for about 200 years. And as we recall um, last week when we we're reading Jonah, right? it was his mission to call them to repentance. And they did. This great capital city with, you know, over 100,000 inhabitants, I think, is what they estimate now. But it's interesting to look at the geography of it. The Nineveh itself was enclosed by a seven and almost eight mile wall. There were 15 gates around it. And each of these gates had a huge stone ox outside guarding it. They they were very proud of their safety and saw themselves as these stone oxes. No one can come past us. You know, no one can enter. Right. The city is filled with huge gardens. The archaeologists who have looked at it, said that they've even found records of a zoo being in Nineveh, where they had um, animals there for people to come and see. So they had all sorts of elaborate hydraulics for the watering of these gardens. They had lots of canals. They dammed the Tigris River to bring in water. It was a very prosperous, wealthy city. And as the capital of Assyria, um, 
materialism often leads one to destruction. And that's exactly yeah. what we see here now by the um, 650 BC, give or take 20 years. That's exactly what we're seeing happening here. And I see the prophet Nahum telling us that God is going to require accountability and that there is a moral law given that reflects God's justice. And unless the wicked repent, they will be destroyed. And also God allows the wicked to destroy the wicked. And that's just what right. we see happening here in this book. But it's fascinating to think of this as the time period when either Lehi and Sariah were young children or Lehi was beginning his ministry as a prophet because you know, they Lehi and his family already have four young men who are of eligible age for marriage by 600 BC. Right. So we assume 640, 630, Lehi is already possibly preaching. But Nahum is just three chapters, and the book is organized with these visions. And the first vision of vengeance goes from verses 1 to 15. And then in chapter 2, Nineveh is besieged. We see it stormed and attacked or described that way. It's a really violent chapter. And chapter 3 is the doom of the city. You know, why they were destroyed. The Lord explains why they became a city of blood. And um, Zephaniah also preaches about this same time and Nineveh's fallen. And we'll read that next or after Habakkuk first, I guess is in the middle. But Babylon actually besieged Nineveh for three months and then they burned it. Mm. And um, their, their king perished in the flames. And the city was left in ruins for a long time. In fact, I love one description by one historian. They said, the garden city became a graveyard. And that is what Nahum is prophesying of here. Anything else on the background that you studied or you'd like to share before we dive into the text? Yeah, nothing on the background, but I'm excited to get into the text, um, especially with some echoes of what we read last week. Mm -hmm. You know, it starts out, many of these uh, minor prophets start out with the burden of mm -hmm. Nineveh. And it, you know, the word in Hebrew is to lift or to carry, but it's used in a prophetic sort as I have to be the bearer of bad news. Mm. You know, I have to give these bad tidings. And I think it's a burden for a prophet to have to see the destruction of a people. It's a burden to have had that kind of knowledge to share these visions. And um, it is, I assume, just as difficult for our modern prophets to carry the load that they carry. It is a burden, but we do believe that as a servant of God, that God will um, help lift that load. And as the Savior will describe in the New Testament, which we're getting to soon, that uh, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Come share your burden with me and I will help you as if we were both joining the same yoke. It's a beautiful image that our Savior uses, but this burdensome message, he begins in chapter 1. I want to read a different translation for verse 3. This is a, a very literal translation called the BSB or the Berean Study Bible. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds or dust beneath his feet. 
And then he continues on in verses uh, six, his fury is poured out, you know, and then he talks about all these natural disasters, tempests, sweeping the east, earthquakes, uh, you know, and he asks finally um, in verse seven, do you want to pick that up? Yeah, this is the back to the King James Version. Great. I'm glad you're reading these verses. These are the exact verses I wanted to cover. Um, but verse 7, again, King James Version, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Yes, he knoweth them that trust in him. My, my heart can sing with that. I feel so comforted. I feel like I'm getting the Lord's arms around me when I read that verse. Yeah. Uh, he knoweth them who trusteth him, and I trust in God. I have had enough years in my life to see that God is always trustworthy. Yeah. I, I love what, what what stood out to me was, you know, the beginning of verse three, which is the Lord is slow to anger. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. echoes so many other scriptures, mm-hmm. but his, his wrath, I guess is the one way to put it, mm-hmm. is absolute. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so. And yet I still want to emphasize that his wrath is a gift of mercy because agreed. it is accountable. Being becoming accountable so is better than continuing to sin. Yeah. Let's draw the line in the sand and ask for accountability so that we can all change. He's always a God of teaching. It's even in this immense wickedness, mm-hmm. right? Which we, which we'll cover yeah. in, in these chapters. It's always paraphrased the very beginning of this book, right? You know, the Lord is very slow to anger and is quick to mercy. And But between that time of the, uh, before the mercy comes, verse eight says he's going to be overrun with a flood, an utter end of the place. You know, he sees God's action as completely making an utter end of the wicked. And that is going to come to pass in a very few years. You know, when the Babylonians come in, that first deportation in 606 or 605 with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, that is is just a few decades from this time period. And then, of course, we have the other um, deportations and the desolation that's left with just a remnants that have left like... Lehi's family, Ishmael's family, the Mulekites, you know, a few others, but very few. So this chapter ends with God promising them in verse 13, I will break his yoke from off thee, and I will burst thy bounds asunder. Our bonds are going to be removed. And Nahum then cites Isaiah. Did you catch Mm, that in verse 15? I did not. Upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings and publish peace. That's Isaiah 52, verse 7. And that's also, speaking of the Book of Mormon, where this is what Abinadi is asked by the wicked priest of Noah. And he explains how this is fulfilled. And then our Savior quotes this in 3 Nephi chapter 20, verse 40. And again in the Restoration... Doctrine and Covenants 128, verse 19. So we have at least four times that the other prophets quote Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publish peace. I feel like this is testifying of our Savior, that tucked into all this violence and destruction and fury, we have these hope of our Savior. It's going to be a beautiful upon the mountain. I also feel like it's not just our Savior. It's our missionaries. It's our prophets. It's those it's that publish peace. Yeah. Anyone throughout the yeah. history of the world who has published peace can fit into that. But it most fits the role of our Savior, Jesus Christ, both on this side of the veil and the other side of the veil. Mm. So let's move on to chapter two. Yeah. 
Nineveh is besieged and stormed and sacked. You know, these first two verses are transposed, I think. It, it just appears, it's just a little bit easier, I think, to read chapter 2, verse 2 first. Right. The Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob. And then chapter 2, verse 1. Do you want to read that one? He that dashes in pieces has come up before thy face. Before thy face. Keep the munition. Watch thy, the way. Make thy loins strong. Fortify thy power mightily. Yeah. And then we get almost like it's a film, this storming of Nineveh. You know, you get the mm -hmm. battering rams and the chariots and the horses and the shields, all this flashing assaults. You know, you really have some horrific war chapters here. Uh, verse 5, those who take the sword perish by the sword is what this reminds me of. And um, I had mentioned earlier that the Babylonians had this phenomenal um, hydraulic system that archaeologists have found as they've right. gone down. And I assume that this is how the city was flooded. Verses mm. six to eight refer to this again as it was in chapter one as well. And it looks to me like um, water was used to, the Babylonians just flooded it. And that's what uh, the archaeologists assume. That, but the victors come in chapter two, verse nine and 10 and loot the whole city with anguish. And, and the survivors are just watching. That mm. chapter three is the doom of the city. And I, I, I think it really parallels a lot to the second coming of our Savior. It comes, to me, it sounds like our day and age Yeah, too. The, whole, the whole book feels that way to me. You know, all the, all the referencing back to the coming it's, of the Savior. I don't think so these on. need to be put on a back burner because they don't have, relate to us. I think these chapters are completely consistent with yeah. what's going to happen. They were types and shadows of what will happen in the last days. And this doom of the city of blood starts out with our woe to the bloody city. That's referring to Nineveh. Mm. You know, woe. And you have been so violent and your robbery and everything has been horrific. Um, and look at verses two and three. There's corpses and corpses, such violent mm. language. But um, I love verse five. Do you want to read that one? Yeah. Chapter three, verse five. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will shew the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. Yeah, the Lord is going to, nothing can be hid from him. Um, and I think the image of the, the nakedness and the clothing is just this outer garment. You know, you think you're hiding things, but nothing, it's all visible to me. I have omniscience. Mm. I can see this. And so Nineveh is going to be laid to waste. And this prophecy of, of Nahum was probably a comfort to those that were frightened of Assyria, not realizing that Babylon was going to be worse. Mm. But um, verse 18 refers, I think, in a sense to our Savior. Thy shepherd slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust, the people scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. Actually, mm. let's just cut that part out. That was the wrong shepherd verse. So our chapter three ends with this tragic realization that those that should have been a shepherd uh, caring for the sheep have not done their job. Verse 18, thy shepherds slumber. Mm. O king of Assyria, thy noble shall dwell in the dust. And that, of course, is... The reference back, dust, is where we were created from. Adam yeah. means soil man. You know, humanity came from the dust and will return to the dust. And that is our mortal life. But there is so much more that we are to do here on earth. We are here to learn and grow and 
the prophet's message of healing um, comes from repentance and comes from joining our lives with our Savior. Yeah. Anything else about the great book of Nahum? For me, you know, the rereading of this, we mentioned this briefly, but it is absolutely a, you know, a latter day parable for me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it comes across so strongly. Mm-hmm. And the strongest verse is the reference to the Savior at the, um, at the end of chapter one, right? The mountains of the feet that bringeth good tidings and peace and everything, you know, everything else. So, that, so in all of that, that verse just stands out so brightly to me. Yes, that is a bright, happy verse. And we're so grateful that Nahum had caught, uh, even though Isaiah is writing a hundred years earlier, he had the text and maybe maybe he was writing it only 50 years earlier, but give or take a few years, it's it's at least a couple of generations. So we are blessed to have Isaiah's word coming through Nahum as well. So let's move on to our wonderful Habakkuk. Yeah, tell me about Habakkuk. What's So it's what's... about the same time period. Okay. Um, we know it's before the Babylonian de- um, deportation. So, you know, 612 is when the Babylonians are taking over. And the text describes the Babylonians' coming destiny and their ability to take over Judah. He's probably a contemporary of Jeremiah and Lehi and all these other. Daniel would have been a very, very young man at this time. And possibly after Josiah's death, we're not told exactly what. It's a little bit tricky on these shorter prophets, on these shorter books. We don't know exactly which kings are where. But so we don't know if this is before or after Josiah's death when the Egyptians come to war with Pharaoh Necho. I don't know if you remember that from earlier chapters in Jeremiah, but Jeremiah 22 describes that. And he, and I think it's the same society that Habakkuk is living in. I think that's it. And there are a few clues in the text. I always like finding him. We know he's a prophet. That's chapter one, verse one. And he's another beautiful poet. He has great literary skill Lots of parallelisms and beautiful um, imageries in his poetry. He also appears to be another temple minister, possibly because he has a lot of liturgical text. He even has a psalm as well, which would suggest that at least he was familiar with them. Whether or not he actually worked in the temple, we don't know. But in the New Testament, you know, we have this broad definition of what a prophet is. And I see Habakkuk is filling into that role as a one who has a belief in Jehovah as the Messiah, as the coming Messiah, as the prophesied Messiah, and he is given a call by God. He is asked to be a spokesman for him, and that's exactly what happens. One of the themes that I saw standing out in this book was the age-old problem of evil. Mm-hmm. You know, we see God's justice and mercy, and we see the virtues of faith and patience, and we see God's omniscience, but what does God do with with evil? And Habakkuk is interesting because he he's writing a little bit later than Nahum. And instead of saying, repent, 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 he asks God two questions and God gives him two answers. Mm-hmm. And in, he just sees the righteous suffering or what he considers to be righteous people, his own people. Right. And, you know, when you're swimming in the same water, you just think we're all the same. So he says, how can you be allowing us to suffer? You know, how can you be allowing the wicked to prosper? And it's interesting that his name means to clasp or embrace. And I think of that beautiful root to kafar, the Hebrew word for atonement, is that embracing, that clasping, the covering of the clothing. Mm -hmm. And then as um, 
Brother Nibley explained in the book Approaching Zion that when someone is fleeing from their enemies and they come across a sheik out in the wilderness and the sheik will meet him at the tent door and they embrace there at the tent door and he's covered with his clothing and then invited into his his tent or his tabernacle for food and nourishment and protection, that embrace there at the veil or the doorway of his tent, that's called the embrace or the clasp. Mm. And Habakkuk's name comes from the same roots of that kafar idea. But the dialogue that comes out of this conversation with God is a dialogue of a frustrated prophet. Yeah. And I I think you'll recognize um, the first question that he asks is very consistent with other questions that we know. Um, do you want to read verse 2? Verse 2, I was just looking at that. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save. Sounds to me very similar to the prophet Joseph. That's exactly what I was thinking. We're in Liberty Jail. We're down in the dungeon. It's section 121. Um, Oh, I'll just... Such a common plea. Oh God, where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? You know, how long will your eye not watch? And that's just what he's saying here. This prophet is having this dialogue with God, begging for an answer. And um, in verse four, he says, therefore, wrong judgment proceedeth. You know, is the law slacked? You know, he, he's so frustrated. And that's exactly when he's complaining to God in the bitterness of spirit um, that he sees it as God's failure to intervene. Um, why are you allowing Judah to be abused? And that's why I think the Babylonians have already been taxing these people. And the timing, though, is part of the miracle. And that's what he's asking. He's saying, how long do we have to endure this anarchy, basically, this destruction and violence and strife and contention? You know? And that's when the Lord gives him this beautiful answer. And the answer comes starting in verse 5. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days. Isn't that comforting? Yeah. He says, how long? I am going to work a work in your days. And this is amazing, too. It's like, you know, literally, right? Which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You have no idea the blessings I am preparing for mm-hmm. you. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's going to be... Um, even if you're, if you don't believe, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, mm-hmm. that ruthless and impetuous people who are going to sweep across the whole earth. They're going to seize the dwellings, not their own. So he's saying, how long are we have to endure the Assyrians? And the Lord says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. I'm bringing the Babylonians. <laughs> and poor, poor Habakkuk goes crazy. He says, because the Lord's saying, you know, their horses are faster than lepers. They're fiercer than wolves in the evening. They're going to fly like eagles. They're violent, you know. And poor Habakkuk says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. You are going to save us with someone who's more wicked? Yeah. You know, he says, how long do we have to endure this miserable Assyrian? And as I mentioned, this takes place before 612 because the Babylonians have not yet captured the Assyrians. Mm. And uh, so the Lord gives his answers uh, after this second 
bursting out of a question. That's Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 through 17 is when he asks this question, and then the Lord answers him. But, you know, his question is still has enough meekness and humility. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you're my rock. You know, I mean, he he he's not saying, oh, I'm not going to worship you. He's still acknowledging his faith and trust in who God is, but he just can hardly believe his ears. Why are you silent? You know? Yeah, this is this is shocking to him. I obviously there's strong Book of Mormon parallels here, right? With I'm thinking of the city of Ammonihah, right? Oh, you know, good for you. How John. does this, you know, this city, you know, frankly, this was a Nephite city, right? Which could be, you could say this was an Israelite or a, or a, you know, um, you know, a Judean city, I suppose, Southern Kingdom city, and, um, you know, of course, it's overrun by by the Lamanites, right? The and that's just what happens. The Babylonians come in, and um, but the Lord delivers His righteous throughout that whole story. Yes, He right? does. And he doesn't destroy until the righteous are removed. And we see that with not only Lehi's family being taken, Ishmael's family being taken, Mulek's family being taken, but we are told there were many others that were taken as well and removed yeah. to a safer place. And, and I see this in verse chapter 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. So the people that see and read and understand the prophecies are going to be able to see that God's yeah. hand was always there. I also appreciate verse one of chapter two. Do you want to go back and just yeah, read that I'll one too? Yeah, read that one. Because this is an answer to his question, right? Yes, it is. Well, this is still Habakkuk mm. speaking right here. Mm. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Lord, you're my rock. I'm going to wait and hear you. And I realize I need some reprimanding because I'm I'm pretty upset about this. You know, I, I realize I need some redirecting. My perspective is not your perspective. It's just his meekness and humility and his patience that is exhibited here. I think this is what makes a man of God, a person of God, one who is willing to watch and see and listen for reproof. You know, if you would... I will listen even if you reprove me. I will hear your word. And mm. he sort of has the feeling that maybe he's out of line. <laughs> yeah. And that's just what happens. So he's going to write this vision down. That's chapter 2, verse 2 that you just read. Let's move on to chapter 2, verse 4. I've got the NIV here. God makes this wonderful promise that there's still going to be order in the universe. That, And God answers him, the righteous person will live by faithfulness. And as I read that, I thought in my mind, there's only one righteous person. The righteous person is the coming promised Messiah. That mm. is Jehovah in, who will become Jesus of Nazareth, you know, the righteous person. But those of us who try to follow him, who try to follow his righteousness, can live by his faithfulness. I, it's always good to be able to see Christ in the scriptures. And I think anytime I have someone point him out to me, it's helpful. I hope that it's helpful for you too. Absolutely. But um, it's interesting. This text, this book of scripture was also found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And mm. it's older than the, um, by several centuries, than the Hebrew text that we currently had before the 
um, Dead Sea Scrolls were translated and we were published in 2000 BC. But in verses five and six um, talks about the arrogant and um, instead of being, um, it changes this in verse five and six to wealthy. It is the wealthy and the greedy mm. um, that will receive the ridicule and scorn of God. And we just have to repeat over and over again, if there is a lot of financial difference between the rich and the poor, the Lord is not happy. Mm. He wants a Zion society to be established amongst his people where we take care of the poor, where we take care of those in need. And I was grateful for that little addition there by the Qumran scrolls in the Dead Sea. Chapter 2, verse 6 now begins our five woes. Verse mm. 6, verse 9, verse 12. I've got them all circled in my scriptures. Verse 15, verse 19. Sin will not go unpunished is what he says, basically. And um, But sin does bring its own nemesis. And that day of reckoning is going to come. And let's look at the postscript. After all these woes, chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So trust me, I know what I'm doing. And even though you may think it's violence and awfulness, trust me. Yeah. I'm in my home. I will, and I don't think this is necessarily talking about the earthly one at this point, since they're not very righteous down there. He's talking about his heavenly temple, but all the earth needs to obey and keep silent. Yeah. And then we get the last chapter where Habakkuk prays to the Lord and asks for mercy. And initially, um, you know, God's choices in human history troubled him. You know, he's upset about it. But now Habakkuk sees God's intervention in the history. He's had the vision where he sees the ending, or at least his heart has been filled with faith to trust that God will intervene in history and He's going to prove his power, and he honors him as not only his redeemer, but as his creator. It's just a beautiful testimony. I think Habakkuk's prayer is a great example of a hymn that was probably used in the Psalms later yeah. on. It's a lovely, but it also has these apocalyptic scenes of the thunder and the lightning. I don't know if you see those in chapter three, where the rivers are right. raging yeah. and the elements are also serving God, that... Let's let's look at verse, chapter three, verse eight. The instruments in God's hands are his are the elements as well. Yeah, Habakkuk three eight. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou shouldst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? And he continues on with that metaphor yeah. of the battle as as they go down to verse twelve. They march through the land with indignation, but he has such confidence in God. I just love. As we continue on from verses 16b to 19, all, you know, that last half of 16 all the way down through 19, he ends with this beautiful promise to wait patiently for the Lord. Uh, 16? Well, start with, why don't we start with 17? So 17, there you go. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit uh, be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me walk up upon mine high places. To the chief singer, 
on yeah, my string yeah, instruments. Yeah, so that's how I know it's a psalm. I think that's yeah. why it became that. Is it's that confidence. But this beautiful message of even during the time of famine, even when we have no more sheep and cattle, even though our we don't have any more grapes or wine or raisins or and nothing's left, not even olive oil's left. I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. I, I see the parallels with Lehi's vision, which is happening at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Lehi is mm-hmm. having the same problems, the same questions. Mm-hmm. And he has this, you know, Lehi's vision comes, but he has the same gratitude after he's seen mm-hmm. the Lord's plan. And we also see the same gratitude at the end of section 121. Yeah. Where Joseph is told, wait patiently and you'll see the hand of the Lord. And he says, I will. What's powerful to me in this one is clearly in 17, the Lord's not taking away any of the terrible things. That no, are they're causing still suffering. happening. He just has a more perspective that God is right. But doing it's it swallowed up wisdom. in the joy mm-hmm. that's only reserved for the saints. That's why it's so helpful for a prophet to tell us the end from the beginning. Because yeah. we know how it's going to end. We can say, all right, I can endure the hard times because I know the Lord has something coming. Yeah. If I can live through them. Uh, the same has happened to me. Like this, these terrible things that happen, you know, whatever it may be, that, whatever your individual challenges, all, they're all different for all of us. Mm-hmm. But it's absolutely this time where I've been able to come to the Lord and he's just given me his comfort through the spirit. Those challenges are still there, but the burdens are made light. And isn't that part of the atoning? I think so. Applying the atonement in our lives as well. absolutely. I love it. Okay, we've just got a few more minutes for our fabulous Zephaniah. It's just this short little three chapters. And again, Zephaniah is written in a poetic form. His name means Yahweh has hidden. And it's probably from a similar time period, you know, 640 down to 609, so right before the Babylonians come down and take over, he's. we're told that King Josiah's, Josiah's reign is parallel here to Nahum, and I see the theme here is second coming, the day of the Lord, and the audience, unfortunately, are ready to apostatize. Uh, they are not ready to repent. Interestingly, for anyone who wants to do a little bit of extra research, the book of Zephaniah was the first book that in the Restoration we had actually biblical commentary. Mm. Oliver Cowdery wrote a treatise on Zephaniah in April of 1834. So that's really a blessing. He even published it in the Evening and Morning Star. But the book itself, these three short chapters, begins with a short introduction and then discusses the world's destruction, not just Jerusalem and Judah, although mm. that is the original, and then it, I believe, is a typology for the world. And then in verse 7 of chapter 1, he announces the day of the Lord. Chapter 2, we get the call to repentance. And chapter 2, verse 5, to all the way through chapter 3, verse 8, the the prophet uh, speaks against the nations. And we get a whole bunch of different nations mentioned. And it's helpful to get out a map on my on my video, I had the map there so you could see where Philistine and Moab and Ammon and Ethiopia all are. But he ends then by announcing the restoration. And so chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, talk about the conversion of the nations, that these Gentiles are going to become part of the Lord's people. And the restoration will include that remnant in Zion. Mm. So it ends with this happy, happy part. You know, it's interesting, Zephaniah unlike the last few minor prophets, actually gives us his genealogy. Hmm. And a lot of people have read chapter 1, verse 1, 
as he's giving these four generations of his genealogy, Zephaniah, the son of Cushai. Now, Cushai means Ethiopian, that he comes from an African descent. And we know there were many Jews living in Ethiopia after the Babylonian captivity, and maybe they were living there before. I don't know. But it appears um, that at least many scholars think that this prophet shows his genealogy to say, I'm adopted into the tribe too, or my people have lived elsewhere, just like Ruth and Naomi lived elsewhere before they came back in. But uh, whether or not we'll get the real genealogy on the other side of the veil, but I do think it's important that his great-great-grandson, he is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, he says. So on one line, um, he appears to be Ethiopian. On the other line, he is a fourth generation down from King Hezekiah. But it says that he's a contemporary with King Josiah. Now, none of these names make sense unless you've got a chart in front of you or unless you have a really good memory. But Josiah is that young king who tries to make all the transformations. He starts at age eight and then dies in battle. But I think he initially is speaking from Jerusalem. It appears that maybe his family lived in Jerusalem at that time. I don't know. But he talks about how in verses two to six, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, man, beast, fowl, fishes, just keep going down. Jerusalem, you know, everything is going to be destroyed. And that's why most people read this as a type of the second coming. Do you want to read verse 7? I see this sort of as a um, prophecy of the marriage feast that Christ uses as one of his parables, and the, the revelation of John refers to the great marriage feast of the Lord, that after everything is destroyed, we'll be able to be rebuilt. And here you go, chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared his sacrifice, he hath bid his guests. He's inviting us all to come. And that's exactly what's happening right now. You know, every conference report we hear that we need to do more gathering, that our responsibilities are to gather Israel. Beautiful message here on that um, first chapter. And then, of course, the second chapter continues with this gathering. Um, Chapter 2, verse 1. Do you want to read that one? Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation, not desired. It has a new meaning to me after COVID that we are to (laughs) gather again. Let's gather in our temples. Let's gather in our church meetings. Let's gather in our socials and our taking care of the poor and the hungry. And um, But he also then goes on and talks about the punishment and the desolation and the day of wrath and the distress of the sinners. You know, all these uh, finish up chapter one and carry into chapter two. Um, as we read about this devouring fire. Well, chapter two, uh, before we go more into, you know, the consequences, he's making a decree here in in chapter two, verse three, seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of Mm -hmm. the earth, which have wrought his judgment, seek righteousness, seek meekness, that it may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. So he's, again, he's in the midst of all of this destruction. He's, Giving a path, right? And he's also using his own name. Remember, um, Zephaniah is Yahweh has hidden. So Mm. he's kept back a portion. There's something. And he says right here in that verse that you just read, uh, the Lord has hidden the righteous. He will protect them. He will save them. A remnant will come forth. And then he goes through and talks about the destruction of all these other nations in chapter 2. 
And chapter 3 goes through until verse 14. And that's where this remnant is referred to um, that did not do iniquity. That's verse 13 says, the remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity. And then in verse 14, let's start reading there to finish up. It's very encouraging. Chapter 3, verse 14. Mm Mm-hmm. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all thy heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And it's such a wonderful time when we can see the hand of the Lord in our lives, and it does fill us with joy. He continues on in verse 18, I will gather them that are sorrowful. Uh, and then down to 19, at that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. And then the NIV reads, I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor to every land they have suffered shame. And at that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will gather you. I will give you honor and praise among all the people of the earth. I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. Mm. So there is always that promise of the Lord's mercy when we learn to obey him. And that's our assignment now is to learn to follow our prophet and to come before the Lord with a humble and meek heart and obey his commandments with exactness. Yeah. What a a high bar to challenge, but the consequences we've seen enacted in history over and over again, as our wonderful prophet Nahum has described and Habakkuk and Zephaniah. Yeah. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. See you next week. Bye-bye.